to Acts uh, chapter 16. We're going to finish uh, chapter 16 today. Uh, the apostles, Paul, uh, Paul and Silas, are still uh, in Philippi. Last week we left them in prison. Uh, so they've been in prison for the whole week, and now they're finally going to get out. Uh, the Word of God, Acts chapter 16, starting uh, in verse uh, 25, uh, and we'll be reading down through uh, the end of the chapter. About midnight, Paul and Silas were, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors uh, were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called the light for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who went on all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he he was baptized at once and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in the Lord. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent them uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now, go in peace. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned uh, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And they do. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid. And when they had heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's start with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all the good gifts that you have given us and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word and we ask that it would go forth with power and might, uh, that the spirit would be living and and active. We just pray that you would bless our time here. Lord, you have things for each one of us to learn, things where we need to grow and be stretched and maybe even corrected or maybe just even encouraged or, or built up or to feel your love and warmth. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would Uh, work in your heart, in our hearts, through the word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. In your precious name, uh, we pray. Amen. Sometimes when there's suffering, we often ask the question, uh, is it worth it? Is it worthwhile? Is all that I am going through and experiencing going to be for any purpose? 
On January 8, 1956, five missionaries were killed in Ecuador when they landed their plane on a sandbar to reach out to local Indians. They had been uh, flying over the area, dropping gifts from a basket. They'd been flying a small uh, Cessna-like plane. And these five men, and and some of them had uh, little children, very little children. These five men lost their lives. And the temptation is to think, is it worth it? Did these men really have to die? Was there even a purpose to it? A few years later, and this is the story of, of Jim Elliott and, and his wife, Elizabeth. Jim was one of the missionaries who died. Nate Saint is another one of the missionaries who died. A few years later, uh, Elizabeth Elliott and one of the other uh, widows were able to move into that village. They were in Ecuador. They met someone from that village. They learned some of the local language. They were able to move into that village. And uh, the missionaries saw the gospel spread in that community. People got saved. Some of the very individuals who were throwing those spears and killed the missionaries believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some, now that this is uh, more than 50 years later, some of those uh, local Indians have gone to be with the Lord. And they are in heaven with the same people that they killed and sent to heaven. But the grace of God triumphed. Was it worth it? Absolutely. God, and this is our main point this morning, God can use suffering for the sake of others. God can use suffering for the sake of saving others. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, and I read this verse last week to us, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for eternal glory. If God has a plan and purpose for everything, oftentimes in our life, when difficult circumstances come up, when when bad things are happening, when trials are upon us, we begin to wonder, why did God let this happen? Doesn't he love me? Doesn't he care for me? Why is he not making my life smoother? Why is he not taking these difficulties away? Why would God let me suffer? God has a plan and purpose in all things, particularly in saving others. And we should never underestimate, never underestimate how God can use the circumstances in your life to bring glory to his name and even people to salvation. Don't sell God short. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He knows more about life and all that is or ever will be than we can even begin to imagine. Do you not think that God knows about your circumstances? That God understands what you are going through. That God sees the bigger picture and even has a bigger plan. God can use suffering for the sake of saving others. First this morning, God controls events. All that happens in this world is in some way under the control, under the rule and reign of God. 
Things do not catch God off guard. God is never surprised. God does not go, oh, oh man, I did not see that one coming. God controls events. And I want to remind you from last week that, that Paul and Silas were unjustly put in prison. Look with me, if you will, back to verse uh, 20 of our passage. We didn't read this yet this morning, but we read it last week. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. This is an injustice. Look at verse 37 and 38, what we read today. Paul says, said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they throw us out secretly. No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they had heard that they were Roman citizens. These unsaved individuals had broken Caesar's law. And Paul rightly even can appeal to this law. You could not be punished as a Roman citizen without having a trial. It is very similar to to due process in our land. The Fifth Amendment of the Bill of Rights guarantees that, that you cannot have a seizure of your property. You cannot have a throwing in jail of a person. You cannot have a, a, a taking of their life without some kind of trial. There needs to be due process. And as an American citizen, you are guaranteed that right. As a citizen in Rome, you are guaranteed certain rights. And and the irony of it here is that Philippi is a Roman colony. It was an injustice. Notice then in our passage as we keep moving, Paul and Silas are in jail and and they are singing and God sends an earthquake. Verse 25, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns and the prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. All the prisoners here are noticing something different about Paul and Silas. Why aren't Paul and Silas grumbling and complaining? They're not hardened individuals. 
They're not regular criminals. They aren't even ranting about how they were thrown in jail unjustly. If someone locked me up in jail and didn't let me have my one phone call, you can bet I would be banging on the the bars of the prison, yelling at guys, hey, get in here. I'm not supposed to be here. This is an injustice. And yet Paul and Silas are just sitting there in their stocks. And I, and I imagine uh, it was quite uncomfortable, maybe even a little painful. And they're singing. They're praying to the Lord out loud, singing hymns. There's a bit of joy, a, a bit of peace, no anxiety over what's going to happen. And God sends an earthquake and sets them free. What's interesting is you and I know that God controls all things. And so in sending this earthquake, not only did the chains fall off of Paul and Silas, they fell off of everybody in the prison. Now, God could have done this in such a way that that only Paul and Silas got set free. God could have sent an angel in there to loosen the stocks, just as he he sent an angel to get Peter out of prison. There there are, I'm sure, a, a million ways that God could have set them free, and he could have done it so that it was only Paul and Silas. When God sends the earthquake, everybody is freed. And what would you expect in a prison with criminals when the bars fly open. Could you imagine if one of the state prisons this morning, if there was an earthquake and maybe a wall fell and some bars to cell block A, B, or C sprung open? Could you imagine what would be hitting the news? Could you imagine all the police helicopters flying around? Can you imagine how many of those guys in there do you think are just going to sit there and say, no, no, I'll just... I'll just wait this out. They'd be out of there like a a bolt of lightning. Although the doors are wide open, no one leaves the jail. Look at verse 27 and 28. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. The jailer assumes everybody's escaped and he's ready to kill himself. The, the punishment that the jailer would have received uh, for having these prisoners escape on his watch was probably going to be worse than him just committing suicide right there. There would have been shame upon him. There would have been shame on his family. Uh, certainly, I'm sure he would have been put to death And he maybe even probably would have been put to death through some kind of torture. Even though it wasn't his fault, it's kind of this was your watch. How dare you let these guys uh, get out? His situation was one of hopelessness, one of despair. And let me just say, even kind of as an aside, if your circumstances seem hopeless, they are never so hopeless that they are outside of the notice of God. Suicide is never your only option. Your life could, could in a moment, in a period of time, in a season, feel like it is in a pit of despair. 
But do not think that suicide is your option. It is when we are at our lowest of our despair and our desperation when the Lord's compassion abounds. The main point isn't about the suicide here that the man was attempting, but notice how Paul's cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul and Silas could have walked out themselves. If, if some kind of injustice was, was done to you, and you were in jail, and all of a sudden the guards aren't there and the doors open up, what would you do? If it was through a powerful earthquake, what would you do? How many of us, myself included, would be tempted to say, see, these guys got what was coming to them. They threw me in jail and they should have known better and God has delivered me and I am going to walk out. How many of us would have been crying out, injustice, 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 this is wrong. Ha ha, God has proved it. Out I go. I'm vindicated. God is on my side. And yet Paul and Silas stay there. Even more, Paul says, for we are all here. Let me ask you this. What kind of difference do you think Paul and Silas were making in that jail through praying and singing so that hardened criminals, when their chains fell off and their doors sprung open, did not leave. As far as we know, Paul and Silas weren't running around going, no, 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 guys, stay here. You can, no, no, don't leave. No, stop. God didn't want you to go. You really are guilty. We're not, but stay. I tell you, whatever was going on in that prison, it was the working of the grace of God through two disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ being Christians in the most horrible of circumstances. It is normal for a Christian to pray. There's nothing unusual about that. It is normal for a Christian to sing. We do it every Sunday. Now, maybe you don't do it on your own. Maybe you're not the person that sings in the shower or sings as you walk around or whistles as you're going. But we sing. We sing on Sundays. We sing to the Lord. They're here in this, uh, this jail having a mini church service. And the people notice it. And they notice there's something different about it. And the hardened criminals see a difference and stay. It reminds me of Jesus on the cross. And the centurion who's watching the suffering of Jesus and he says, in effect, something is different. He says in Mark's Gospel, truly, this man is the Son of God. Because he suffered as one who was innocent. And there was something different about the way he conducted himself on the cross. There was something different about how Paul and Silas conducted themselves. I want to say this to you and I this morning. The Word of God wants to tell us this, instruct us. Believe that God controls all events and respond accordingly. This is what we see in Paul and Silas. They believe that God is controlling all of these things and they respond appropriately. 
They respond with godliness. They respond with simple trust in Him. Even after they are beaten and their clothes are torn, they do not play the woe is me card. Oh, I'm under such persecution. It was persecution. I'm not trying to minimize that. But they just trust God. The Scriptures say in Ephesians 1.11, For in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who, pay attention to this, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So there are two ways that God works His will. First, there are, God actively does things. The earthquake. God said, in effect, God said, These guys need to get out of jail. Boom, I'm going to send an earthquake. The doors will open. The chains will fall off. God actively willed that. The second way that God wills things is God determines to allow it. So God does not cause evil. The Scriptures say God is not the author of sin. But, for example, He allows Paul and Silas to be beaten. He allows sinners to to sin. You think of Job. God allowed Satan to bring horrendous things into his life. And even then, God in his goodness restrained Satan. You think most of all of Jesus. God allowed wicked men to crucify Jesus. And the Scriptures say it happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That God, before the foundations of the world, had determined that His Son should come to earth and die. God decreed it. And in decreeing that, God determined to allow men to do wicked, horrible sins in putting an innocent man, Jesus, to death so that it might fulfill His will. All of, God's circumstance, all of circumstances are under God's will, either directly or indirectly, that He allows it to happen. But it doesn't surprise God. It doesn't catch God off guard. There isn't a sense where God says, oh man, I, I really didn't want Paul and Silas to end up in jail. Oh man, I better, oh, I know, I'll send an earthquake and that's how they'll get out. Okay, back on the main plan. No, God had determined it and He determined to allow these men to do it and it serves the plan and purpose of God. How you and I respond to trials and hardship then will display our Christian character. Paul says this in Romans 5, 3 and 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. People may respond then to Jesus when they see the reality of hope in your life. When you act different in times of suffering, in times of hardship, even just normal life difficulties, when people see you trusting in the Lord, They're going to notice something is different about you. And the Lord may even use that to respond or to cause people to respond to the gospel. It can be even the little things in life. At your job, you get a 
a really bad assignment, the one that everybody complains and nobody wants. And it's given to you and you don't really want it. But you're faithful. And even as you're doing it, you may not like it, but you don't make a big deal out of it. You're not sitting in the break room grumbling and complaining. As people are teasing you, ah, you got the bum assignment. You're like, yeah, that's all right. We'll get it done. People will notice something is different about you. Maybe it's in a bad tragedy. The death of a loved one. The suffering of someone through cancer. A Christian response is different than that of the world. And it can lead people to the Lord. The son of the martyr Nate Saint, one of the martyrs who died in the story we started with, the son Steve Saint, wrote in in Christianity Today in 1996 a little essay, Did They Have to Die? Did They Have to Die? And he says, towards the end of this essay, he says this, They, meaning the murderers, had to know the answer. So this is years later, uh, Steve sits down with some of the tribe and he finally asks them a little bit about what happened on that day and, and, and why. He says that they, the murderers, had to know the answer. Why would the missionaries let themselves be killed rather than than kill? You may not know this, but the missionaries actually had guns with them that day. They had guns that they had brought with them to uh, fend off any wild animals should they come during the night. But they had made a promise to, to God before they went. They wouldn't raise a hand against any of the local villagers. And the people, as they were, the few as they were attacking with these spears, the shots were fired in the air as warnings. And, and the, the, the natives wondered after that event, why did these people not kill us? They were a culture that, that thrived on revenge and killing and, and getting even and getting your due in before someone else gets you. Steve Saint again, why would the missionaries let themselves be killed rather than killed as a normal, uh, I can't even say the name of the tribe, Huarani would have done? This question dogged uh, Gikita, one of the, the men who killed and later got saved. This question dogged him until he heard the full story of the men, uh, why the men wanted to make contact about another man, Jesus who freely allowed his own death to all the benefit of the people. You see, the Lord knew Gekita and had elected him before the foundations of the world. And the Lord determined to allow the slaughter of five missionaries on that day to bring the gospel to this tribe, to bring the salvation of individuals, including Gekita, and I hope I'm saying his name right. When we get to heaven, you'll have to ask him if I pronounced it right. But God uses suffering for his own purposes to save sinners. Our second point this morning. Oh, we got the PowerPoint working. Amen, I guess. Uh, Second point this morning. God saves sinners. And this is where the whole passage is going. The jailer goes in to investigate. Verse 29, And the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in, trembling with fear, and he falls before Paul and Silas. He, he knows there is something different about these men. 
And, and I think that perhaps he goes in with fear because he doesn't know what's going to happen to himself. These men have been treated unjustly. He's been on the wrong side of the law between Paul and Silas. He's the guilty one here. He's done something that's wrong. And now he's going in. What are they going to do? Maybe he even knows that these guys through the name of Jesus have cast out a demon and wondering what's going to happen. And it says in verse 30, then that the jailer asked how to be saved. It says, then he brought them out. So he brings them out of their, their inner cell there. And, and so he's, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is very similar to Acts 16, 17, where the demoniac girl is walking around and she says, these men are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim the way of salvation. So the jailer here has some limited knowledge of what these guys are proclaiming. He knows why they're in town, that they're missionaries of some kind. And he's under some conviction from the Lord. He's, he's fearful for what he's done and the way he's treated them. And he brings them out and, and he says, what must I do to be saved? This is highly irregular that a jailer would bring these men out. He could have stayed in the cell with them and said, you know, we'll wait until the magistrates get here. But, but just while we're waiting, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? He's already shown these signs of repentance in that he's behaving differently towards Paul and Silas. What do I need to do to be saved? Paul says the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Paul doesn't say, well, let's see what you can do for us first. Why don't you clean up our wounds first a little bit and then we'll share the gospel with you. Paul doesn't lay a heavy burden upon this man. You need to act this way. Do these certain things. Why don't you come to our church service first? We'll see if you're ready after a little while. He simply says to this sinner who is seeking the Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you lead someone to the Lord? You share the gospel with them. You share what Jesus Christ has done, his death and resurrection, and then you call them and invite them to believe. And the Lord will work. The Holy Spirit will work in their hearts. He will take that sinner who is dead in his sins, who is blinded from the truth, and the Holy Spirit will work. Just like Paul can say, I suffer all things for the sake of the elect. We share the gospel because we know God will work in the hearts and lives of people. And God does the work in saving people and we're just the faithful messenger. We're, we're just the guy going out and, and giving the invitation. Come. Believe. Trust in Jesus. Salvation will come to you. You will be saved. The only way that a person then becomes saved and receives the forgiveness of sins is through belief. Belief is an act of trust. You're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief is an act of confession. Believe in the Lord Jesus. 
You're proclaiming who He is and, 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 and inviting the person to, to accept Him and confess that Jesus is Lord. You know these verses well, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. My mind starts getting ahead of myself and I have the verses usually memorized and then I start saying them and I need to look down. For, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's a promise here. Believe and you will be saved. There's an assurance that those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We receive that salvation when we believe. And the future aspects of that salvation we will receive. They will not be lost to us because when God works salvation, He works it through to completion. He who began a good work in you will not stop, but will carry it through to completion on the day of our redemption when the Lord Jesus returns. The benefits of salvation are now the forgiveness of sins belonging to Jesus. The future of salvation is heaven. And then after heaven, if we die before the Lord returns anyways, heaven. And after that, the resurrection of our bodies. And after that, the new heavens and the new earth in resurrected bodies. But it comes to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things this morning. First, we need to call people to be saved. We need to invite people. Believe in the Lord Jesus. This is what evangelism is. It's when you share the truth with someone. But you don't just leave them hanging. You're not just telling them a good story, so to speak. You then give them a call and invite them. Say, look, have you ever received Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever considered believing Him? And Maybe you just put it straight in the imperative. Hey, Believe this and you can be saved. You can go to heaven. You can have the forgiveness of sins, but you need to make that call to the person, to the individual. You announce, you tell them that Jesus is Savior and Lord. You tell them why this is good news. You tell them what the bad news is. If we do not believe in this, we are under the wrath of God for the curse for our sins is upon us. But if you believe, You will be saved. Oh, won't you believe? Second, we need to be assured of the promise. God will save those who have trusted and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.11 For everyone who calls on Him will not be put to shame. Romans 10.13 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise. It's a promise from God. That brings us to our third point, really. And that's this will be saved aspect. That God is the one who causes the word to be effective. It's not because Paul and Silas were such great guys. It's because God was working through the word. Look at verse 32 then. They share the word of God with his household. It says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. The household is hearing God's word 
and coming to saving faith. So when he says in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, he does not mean that if the jailer here, the father, believes everybody in the house is automatically saved. It doesn't matter what they do or how they live. It does not mean that if the jailer just believes, if he's the only one who believes, everybody in the house should then get baptized because uh, they're under him somehow. What it means is they're saying to the family, if jailer, if you believe you'll be saved, and if anybody else here believes you'll be saved too. Because it says, and they spoke the word of God to him and all who were in his house. They are all hearing this invitation and are all being told you can be saved. Anybody is open. Anybody can receive this invitation. Now, God has his plans and purposes in saving people. And we don't know what that is and and who's going to respond. But our job is to say to everybody, hey, if you believe this, the promise is you'll be saved. Why don't you believe this? Come receive Jesus. This is what Paul and Silas are doing. Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how will they uh, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And what I'm saying to you is that they are giving the word of Christ, the word of the Lord to these people, and they are calling them to faith. And that's why the promise is to you and your household, because the household is hearing the word of God and being called to believe. So it says, then the jailer takes Paul and Silas and he's also baptized. So he takes them up in verse 33, took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This conversion is so quick, this so sincere. They baptize him that very night. It says they baptized. He was baptized at once. He and also his family. He's responded to the word. He's made a profession of faith. And to symbolize that, they've baptized him. His family has heard the word and are responding. And they are baptized with him. The jailer could have gotten in quite a lot of trouble for taking Paul and Silas up to his house. The jailer could have gotten in quite a lot of trouble for washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. And he doesn't care. This is how sincere he is in his belief. The jailer then and his family rejoiced. Look at the last verse. And they brought them up to his house and set food before him and rejoiced. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed. The household is rejoicing. The jailer came to saving faith. Let me ask you this. Do you think the family would have rejoiced if they too had not come to saving faith? When was the last time you saw a non-Christian rejoice when somebody got saved? I mean really rejoiced. Hey, I'm an atheist, but amen, you came to Jesus. They're rejoicing that dad or husband or, or whoever got saved. Because he brought home the word of God by bringing home Paul and Silas. And they've believed and been baptized too. 
And this passage, as it were, comes full circle. We start with a worship service in a sense. Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns. And we end with a worship service, maybe even a fellowship meal. Uh, they're, they're good Baptists, right? They have a meal afterwards. Uh, they're eating together and they're rejoicing that God has saved sinners. And this would not have happened if it was not for the plan and purpose of God in unjust suffering and throwing Paul and Silas in jail. Consider then how God may use circumstances in your life. What are you going through? Maybe it's minor. Maybe it's no big deal. Sometimes for me, it's the no big deal things that I grumble the most about. Oh, I got a flat tire again. Car's not running right. But God can use your circumstances, big or small. Let me give you two challenges. First, pray for yourself and others that we would rightly respond to trials, difficulties, sufferings, hardships. Pray that we would rightly respond and respond in godliness to all that happens in our lives. Ask the Lord to let our lights, to help us let our light shine. I'll be completely honest. On most days, I would not be singing and praying if I was in jail in stocks. If I was praying, I might be praying the imprecatory psalms, you know. God, get these guys back for what they did to me. But God used this response of godliness. Second, pray that others would come to saving faith and that God would be glorified, especially when you go through hardships. You might go through hardships of such a degree that you never know why God let it happen or how God used it. The five men who died never saw their children grow up and never saw anyone come to saving faith in that jungle. That may be your circumstances. God may never tell us why. It's, it's wonderful when we see all the circumstances come together and we get a sense of, wow, that's why God let that happen. I've had some of those things in my life, and maybe you have too. But whatever it is, ask and pray that God would be glorified and then trust that God will do that. God's mission in this creation, in this world, is to glorify His name. And He is going to delight when you as a Christian come before Him and say, God, I don't know why I'm going through this, but somehow, in some way, make Your name be known. Make Your name be big. Show Your glory, maybe even in just the small way that I handle these circumstances. Pray to that end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us today from your word. We just delight that you are sovereign and in control over all things. Just such comfort that brings. But yet, Lord, we need to be humble. Because sometimes we think that because you're sovereign and know all the answers, you should be telling us all the answers explaining to us why you did this or that. Lord, we are the the clay and you are the potter. Make us and mold us. Your ways are higher uh, than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Oh, Lord, help us to trust you. I pray that you would use our church to, to spread the gospel, 
that lost people would come to, to saving faith, particularly from the communities around us, maybe some of our own neighbors. Give us the courage to invite others to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we ask that your glory would be known, that your name would be made great, and that when we stand before you in that last day, there would be many around us who are bending the knee before you because they've also come to saving faith through what you've been doing here through our lives. Oh, in your name we pray. Amen.